Hello, and welcome to episode number 40 of the Point of Convergence podcast. As always, I'm your host, Exoacadamian. When it comes to diving into the ultima mysterium that is the UFO phenomenon, someone new to the endeavor is likely to quickly find themselves surprised and likely overwhelmed by just how many directions this topic can quickly diverge into. In the simpler time of the early to mid-20th century, sightings of strange objects in the sky inspired Earthlings to imagine the dawn of an era of visitation from other planetary civilizations. Were these Martians or Venusians? The collective imagination of the time didn't go much beyond that. Of course, the nature of the conversation about the UFO phenomenon today is in a very different place. A plain question with a few apparent options on the table in terms of answers has burgeoned into a much larger multifaceted discussion, not just about alien visitors traversing the immense distances of interstellar space, and we are talking interstellar space at this point because we now understand, unlike those in the early to mid-20th century, that the neighboring planets of our own solar system are decidedly lifeless and barren but also one about parallel dimensions of reality, perhaps existing right alongside us, and even even more bewilderingly, perhaps consisting of entities that can hop back and forth between our and some of these other dimensions with the ease and regularity upon which we move from one room of a house to another. As if that added complexity wasn't already enough to juggle, In-depth investigations into the nature of the apparent contact experiences between these alien visitors and human beings suggest these others, many of them anyway, are capable of manipulating human perception, and perhaps even human consciousness itself, somewhat like how we might control a puppet on a string, to the point where even the data we gather to examine the objective nature of our interactions with these others is called into question. After all, if they can not only control what we see, taste, smell, feel, and hear, but also apparently implant false memories that are indistinguishable from real events of our past, how much confidence can we have in any analysis of the data we do? It does seem fair to say that whatever conclusions we do come to after combing through and collating this data is precisely the conclusions these others are comfortable with us coming to. While some human beings who look into this phenomenon find themselves feeling frustrated and helpless after having understood the degree of superiority these others wield over us, other people are less concerned and are perhaps even inspired and hopeful that a more advanced intelligence in our midst perhaps is here to help prevent us from rushing off the precipice of doom we've arrived at after centuries of self-inflicted violence and aggression. Now, while this is undoubtedly a lot to take in when we look at the amalgam of experiences of people who've had supposed contact with these others, certain patterns do emerge, albeit with the caveat of perception control we mentioned earlier. In fact, common data points have become apparent to the point where some people have endeavored to catalog whole species of alien intelligences, resulting in so-called almanacs of extraterrestrial species. Of course, with such books, we're right back where we started, with a bold-faced assumption that the nature of these non-human intelligences is simply and solely extraterrestrial. A questionable conclusion, to be sure. That said, 
it can be helpful to pause the process of examining new cases in order to look back at the data we've gathered thus far from a so-called 30,000-foot view, peering over the information in its totality to see what overarching perspectives may emerge, using both the tools of steel-toothed analysis and inspirational insight. And that ambitious endeavor is exactly what we'll embark upon in this, the 40th episode of the Point of Convergence podcast. As I've mentioned before on this podcast, I like to go back and forth between the micro and the macro view when it comes to examining the UFO phenomenon and high strangeness in general, as we're prone to do on this podcast. And that's because we can certainly gain additional details, often very fruitful details that are telling and hint at something underlyingly true about the UFO phenomenon. But it's also helpful to step back, take the big picture perspective, and look at the overall trends and themes that emerge over time as we examine more and more cases. The more you find certain elements repeat themselves in multiple cases from different witnesses and different experiencers, the more confidence you can have that this is really revealing something fundamentally true about the nature of this phenomenon. That said, because of the tricky nature of this phenomenon, as I just talked about in the introduction, where both our perception and even our consciousness, it would seem, can be controlled by these others, any conclusions we come to should be somewhat tentative. What we may be experiencing is just a surface level, a facade of sorts, and there may be one or even multiple levels of reality below that. But we can at least do that, examine the surface level, what appears to us. And as I just said, what common trends do we notice when we look at a variety of experiencers' experiences over time, across cultures, etc.? Now, one important point that I'd like to bring to your attention when it comes to studying the UFO phenomenon is that even seasoned investigators seem to go through seasons where certain elements come to the fore for them, and in other seasons, different elements come to the fore. I look back at the history of someone like Jacques Vallée, for instance, and I see that trend. And Colin Wilson has written an excellent book several years ago called Alien Dawn, and he also notices this. And he talks about this, how Vallée seems to go through different seasons where he's emphasizing at least different elements of the UFO phenomenon. Now, that may be the case, or perhaps Valet would defend himself and say, I just wanted to focus on one element and then another and then another. And he has said, in fact, that the paradoxes that come out in his work is really just because that's there in the phenomenon itself. It's in the data we have available. But I think there may be more than this. I think that Colin Wilson may be onto something that as we study this phenomenon, different elements do appear to us. Now, what's of course interesting is to question, does the phenomenon itself lead us in one direction and then another? I have to be honest and say, as a supposed objective observer, I sometimes feel a slightly almost unconscious leading going on. It's something that I can never quite put my finger on, but I sometimes look back and go, I wonder what made me go in that direction then and this other direction another time. Again, it's almost impossible to know, 
It may indeed be impossible to know, but it is something to keep in mind. That said, one other point to bring to your attention. This may be something like the analogy of when people blindfolded are studying an elephant for the first time and trying to report back in terms of what they're finding. What they report back may be very different because one may be kneeling down and feeling a giant elephant foot and saying, well, it's like this. The texture's like this. It's about this size. Another person may be at the trunk and saying, no, it's much more like this. It's kind of flexible. It goes up and down, makes funny sounds. Someone else may be sitting on top of the elephant and feeling the top of its back. Again, depending on where you are, you're going to have a different experience and report back different elements. And because we are somewhat blindfolded when it comes to this phenomenon, we don't really know how much of the totality we're seeing or how the different parts relate together. Again, it makes it very fascinating, but also quite perplexing to study. Now let's get on to discussing contact events, contact experiences, abductions, whatever you want to call it. Let's just discuss that entire part of the phenomenon, because I think it's essential to discuss the UFO phenomenon without discussing contact events slash experiences is something akin to walking into a restaurant and reviewing it based on the decor of the restaurant without ever discussing the meal you actually consume there. You get my point. That said, it is very difficult to get the mainstream media and our politicians and whatnot to actually take this part of the phenomenon seriously, and yet we could easily argue this is the most essential part of the phenomenon. Even for someone with a pedigree of Ralph Blumenthal, for instance, getting an article discussing experiencers' accounts and the implications is a major challenge. Now, just in case you're not familiar with who Ralph Blumenthal is, he is the person, along with Leslie Kane, who wrote the famous article, the now famous article, that was published in the New York Times in 2017 discussing ATIP and the actual evidence for these videos and photographs of these UAP that really helped to launch this topic into the stratosphere, so to speak, within the mainstream. The fact that a paper with the history and gravitas of the New York Times published this article was extremely important for this topic to move forward, to go beyond the ridicule factor, the scoff factor, the X-Files factor, for it to be taken seriously, finally, as an objective field of study. We're not quite there yet, but we've come a long way, and that article has a lot to do with it. Now, Ralph Blumenthal followed up that article with some others, and more recently, he's written an article about experiencers. Now, he had a, an agreement with the New York Times to publish this article when he was done. The challenge is, as we ended up learning from Ralph himself this past week, the champions of his cause, the editors who had agreed to publish this article when he was finished, ended up moving on from the paper before he was done. So when it came time to actually publish it, the latest editors were not interested. They did not have the same confidence in this topic and maybe didn't have the history with Ralph to feel confident in publishing it. A very unfortunate turn of events, and I'm sure that was extremely frustrating for Ralph. It certainly is frustrating to all of us who want to continue to see this topic move forward in the public sphere. 
And it wasn't just the New York Times. Ralph made it clear that when he tried to get other mainstream papers to publish this, he simply couldn't. He came up empty-handed. And that is quite telling. That should show us where we actually are in this process. We still have a ways to go, and we shouldn't get ahead of ourselves. In the end, a smaller startup paper known as The Debrief ended up agreeing to publish this paper. Now, even there, though, it was frustrating to me that a certain disclaimer was included with this article, and I want to read that disclaimer to you. And just to be crystal clear, this was an article about contactees slash abductees slash experiencers. Quoting from this editorial note, quote, These phenomena, colloquially known as alien abduction or alien contact, have not been adequately studied and according to contemporary scientific understanding, are not a proven objective event. Due to the nature of these accounts and the related phenomena, they cannot be verified by the debrief's editorial team. These unedited accounts have been included strictly for the sake of posterity at the request of the author. Unquote. Here is my response to that, what I consider unwarranted, unnecessary editorial note. The even bigger issue here is how one goes about even defining a quote-unquote objective event. Bottom line, that is an outdated notion when it comes to vast swaths of clearly demonstrable data regarding the UFO phenomenon. Again, we look back at historic researchers like Jacques Vallée who've moved this topic into a completely different place because of their dogged determinism to get at the data, look for trends, and most importantly, pay very close attention to witness accounts and how witnesses are actually changed over the long term by these events. Now, if Jacques were to apply the same kind of criteria as the debrief team, we would not have his significant and topic-changing work as a result. Again, bottom line, this topic does challenge our very notions of reality. It challenges the supremacy and the adequacy, the sufficiency of the scientific method. Scientific materialism, to some degree, gets turned on its head when we look at the data for this topic. But I do not think the answer is to therefore exclude all of the data that clearly seems like an outlier to scientific materialism. If we do that, we're left with pretty much nothing at all. And that's partly why this topic hasn't moved forward in the mainstream over the last several decades. Now, let me also address what is a bit of a pet peeve of mine. It's something I've mentioned numerous times on this podcast. People often talk about the UFO phenomenon as if it's one thing, as if the entire totality, all of the different behaviors and activities are the product of a singular actor. In other words, one intelligence or a group of entities that belong to one species. Bottom line, it comes down to a singular actor, basically, one agenda. I think that is mistaken for numerous reasons, and I've touched on those before, so I won't get into too much of it again now. But I will say that I don't think it's just people's bias towards a certain perspective that gets them to that point where they think about it in terms of just one actor. It's also partly due to the fact that the notion of accepting the reality that sophisticated and likely superior non-human intelligence is already here in our midst is already a massive leap for most people. 
So tacking on the additional notion of multiple intelligences or multiple species, or as I tend to believe, the notion that reality is actually teeming with interdimensional life, is simply a bridge too far for many people. But that's from a psychological point of view. So it's not even an objective uh, conclusion they've come to through rational means. I don't think they're even fully conscious of it. I think that is such a leap for many people to even accept the fact that there may be another intelligent species in our midst, and then another step further, they are not just our equal, but likely further advanced than us, meaning they could control us, and there's some evidence they do in various ways. And then you go even another step to the idea that there is a universe teeming with life, some of it interdimensional, perhaps much of it interdimensional, knowing that the average person in the population doesn't know what that is or what that means. It's not part of their vocabulary whatsoever, really. They may have heard about it on a science fiction show, and that's about it. And you see how far away people are from really confronting and grappling with this truth. It is just so many steps removed from most people's basic everyday experience of reality. Now, a further implication of that confusion, that unfamiliarity, the average person in the population has for some of the terms we banty about for those of us who discuss this phenomenon regularly, it does get complicated when you talk about the extra-dimensional versus the interdimensional hypothesis, for instance. Now, some people will argue back and forth, debate back and forth, based on what they think is objective data supporting one view or the other. From my point of view, that may be a foolhardy endeavor to some degree, because I think our terms are too specific, too concrete, and I think there's probably a blend of those two going on. And as we move forward, we may in fact find that those two terms collapse into something larger, more all-encompassing, something that transcends and includes both of them, or as I like to say, transcludes. Now, here's why I think it can be problematic to think about those two hypotheses as too concretized, too specific, and mutually exclusive. The thing is, any spacefaring race will likely have conquered consciousness to a much further degree than we have. They may in fact dwell in something people often refer to as hyperspace. Now, if you're not familiar with that, hyperspace, which is also known as subspace, overspace, or null space is a science fiction concept, and it also has been found in various cutting-edge science circles, and it relates to higher dimensions and a superluminal method of interstellar travel, that meaning faster than the speed of light. As I've mentioned before, I think it's hilarious, honestly, that's the word I would use, when scientists or astrophysicists try and claim that Interstellar travel is impossible pragmatically because the distances are so vast. They assume that since we don't know how to get there in any kind of reasonable rate, that no other intelligence would have figured that out either. Now, the reason why I say that is hilarious is because, again, think about it. We've come from horse and buggy to spacecraft that have now left our solar system in the course of about 100 years. So imagine how much further ahead a species or a civilization that may be millions or even billions of years ahead of us, even a few thousand, and they clearly would eclipse us 
to the degree where even our imaginations couldn't possibly conceive of these notions that may be commonplace for them. Now, again, hyperspace is one possibility. And again, that's just based on our current imagination, our 21st century imagination. It may be way off. But even within our own civilization, there are people who are imagining that in the future, we won't actually move spacecraft using something like rocket engines, no matter how powerful and efficient they are. That's not going to help us accomplish true interstellar travel in an efficient manner. Rather, you might convert matter into pure energy, move it that way, and then rematerialize, somewhat like what we see in Star Trek. Or perhaps what you would do is somehow warp space-time itself, and therefore be able to transverse immense distances as if you're basically passing through a small doorway into an adjoining room. This is how travel may look like for some of these interstellar species. And again, this is very difficult for the mainstream to wrap its head around, largely because of hubris and nothing else, because they use a measuring tape of our own progress, our own conceptions to try and make absolute conclusions about what's possible with space travel, which again is a very, very foolhardy endeavor. But to get back to my initial point, these entities, these intelligences may have begun as a biologically based species located on some other planet in some far-flung star system. But once they reach a certain level of development, their technology, which would encompass both inner and external technology, so both really advanced external technology that could manipulate matter and energy, but also interior technology, or what we might call inner science, this understanding of how to move consciousness itself. In other words, these extraterrestrial species or intelligences would also likely be what we consider interdimensional. And that's why I say these two hypotheses or the two notions they're based upon may indeed collapse as we learn more about the nature of the cosmos and of the very fabric of reality itself. Also, the notion of a cosmos teeming with life gets even more crowded once you take into account the fact that even on the Earth, life keeps popping up in environments we previously assumed would simply be completely inhospitable to it. That notion of what life even looks like and where it can and does arise will likely only keep expanding. But again, while it's almost certain that civilizations more advanced than ours have and likely still are visiting us, we need not assume all of these others are visitors to our planet. In fact, that notion that this is our planet really is likely to be put under severe strain as revelations continue to emerge in this field. And that's because I think it's highly likely that groups of intelligences exist right here in our midst, if you will, and perhaps always have done, dwelling in a kind of shadow biome, as scientist Eric Davis puts it. And it's from this understanding that we get hypotheses such as ultra-terrestrials, beings that both John Keel and people like Hal Putoff have talked about. Now, again, they talk about this notion slightly differently. For John Keel, they're coming from this overarching super spectrum that's all around us, just beyond our senses. And for someone like Hal Putoff, the notion is slightly different. 
But the bottom line is they could be beings that are either here, perhaps in our oceans, and just have cloaking technology or something like that, or even a consciousness cloaking technology. Again, it wouldn't have to be external technology. All they have to do is prevent our occipital lobe from noticing them, for instance. Then they may be actually here on our physical earth, or they may be creatures that are traversing between some other dimension and here. And that's why I say sometimes here and sometimes not. Still denizens of this planet, though, you could say. Now, speaking of contact events and different kinds of entities we may be coming into contact with, we've already discussed extraterrestrials, interdimensionals, and ultraterrestrials, and how those may be actually a blend of all three. There are also occasions when we actually initiate contact with them. It's not just a one-way street, so to speak. We'll get to CE5 or HICE, human-initiated contact events, in a moment. But there's more than that as well. Now, on previous podcasts, I've mentioned in passing other ways that we can come into contact with these others. I'd like to discuss that again a bit more now in greater detail. One way is through a kind of meditation where one creates a loose focus on the small self and is therefore absorbed into a kind of stream of consciousness. And when this happens, different entities, and people for that matter, are encountered. This has been known to happen. In fact, for myself, I've experienced this and I've talked about it before. For me, it's actually the most successful kind of contact I've experienced at least in terms of me taking the front foot, so to speak, and initiating the contact. Now, sometimes when we enter into that kind of meditation, time and space change. We really do, in some ways, leave, depart this construct, this physical construct that our physical bodies are tied to. Our consciousness transcends this physical reality and merges with something much bigger. Something, again, outside of time and space, you might say. Now, Joseph Goldstein is a Buddhist writer that I enjoy, and I want to quote from his book, One Dharma, to describe this process a little more clearly. Quote, As awareness becomes steadier and concentration stronger, the quality of bare attention begins to reveal deeper insights into the world and into ourselves. We begin to cut through the stories we tell ourselves about experience living less in thoughts about things and increasingly in the direct experience of the moment. As one example, we see that our experiences of past and future are simply thoughts in the moment, and so we become less caught up in them." Unquote. Now again, I don't think he had notions of contacting alien intelligences in mind when he wrote this passage, but I do think it's a consequence and implication of what he's talking about here, where both time and space are transcended. When we do this, we can contact these others, some of them anyway. And meditation is one form of this kind of contact. There are other ways as well. For instance, shamanic journeys, which can be facilitated with natural compounds such as those found in a brew like ayahuasca. And by the way, ayahuasca is a hallucinogenic brew made from one of several Amazonian plants containing DMT, which is the primary psychoactive ingredient. And speaking of DMT, for those who want to take out the ritualistic aspect of the process where ayahuasca tea is drunk in 
South American cultures, for instance, as part of a religious practice, one can simply take DMT directly. And before you assume this is some sort of really strange foreign drug, our brains naturally produce large amounts of DMT. In fact, it has been suggested that DMT may be the psychoactive ingredient that allows us to experience other dimensions and even elements of spirituality, the ability to connect with larger elements of the cosmos, of reality, and perhaps of interdimensional hyperspace. And in terms of trying to visualize how this process actually works, I think it's helpful to remember that it's not so much that we're going anywhere, so much so that our normal filters are simply taken offline for a time, allowing us to better see what is all around us already. Take caution here because this could be overwhelming in one massive reveal. In other words, we have evolved like we have, where we filter out massive amounts of data for a reason, primarily because our evolutionary selves wanted to stay alive. And therefore, it was important for us to have the ability to only perceive and deal with the relevant data pertaining to us staying alive, gathering food, that kind of thing. That was what allowed us to perpetuate the species in an earlier stage of our existence. Of course, we're not in that place now, most of us, and therefore we can look at this somewhat differently. In other words, now may be an apt time in our civilization's history to begin to learn to navigate these realms, perhaps with the assistance of substances, compounds like DMT, which again, naturally occurs in nature and also is naturally produced by our brains. Now, speaking of the use of DMT and shamanic journeys and that kind of thing, we would do well to remember that part of the reason why our civilization has such difficulty conceiving of these multidimensional realities where the universe is teeming with life is because we are the byproduct of a Judeo-Christian kind of history, where, as I've discussed before, we have in our history kind of a three-tiered perspective on reality, where you have the sort of dual spiritual realms of God and angels in heaven and Satan and demons in hell, and in the in-between zone, the earth, species like human beings and the other animal creatures. For other cultures, for instance, in the Amazon and in parts of Africa and whatnot, as well as in the United Kingdom and places like Wales, which have a very rich and diverse history, shamanic experiences were very different and are very different still today in many of these societies. For many of them, it is commonplace to experience these other entities. It is part of their daily experience, in fact, they will often actually seek the guidance of these other entities in order to make their way in the everyday world. In other words, we would do well to remember that it is not all human beings who find these notions so foreign. It is just Western civilization. And again, we tend to have a lot of hubris and assume that what we think is what goes. But that is not the case, and we should remember cross-cultural experiences here. It is very telling when it comes to this particular topic. And let me just take a moment to, again, really drive home this point, because I think it is very important for us to be cognizant of. When we are able to take these filters offline, these evolutionary filters that have been in place since the dawn of humankind, we are actually perceiving not less, but more of reality. 
Again, we've discussed the figure of Donald Hoffman in this podcast before. He talks about how what we perceive is not likely reality at all, but a construct, an interface of sorts that allows us to stay alive. But when these filters are taken offline, we are actually experiencing more of the real world. We have a notion of reality that is actually closer to the truth. I think that's very important for us to be aware of. And now I'd like to leave you with a few concluding thoughts. I've already mentioned that it is a big leap for people to go from understanding we may not be alone in terms of other intelligences in the cosmos to realizing that they may in fact be in our midst already and perhaps always have been. Then there's the additional leap of recognizing there may be a multitude of such intelligences, in fact, a universe teeming with life, even locally, in our midst. But there's also the leap for many into understanding that we may not be the apex intelligence. And I say may in a somewhat coy way, because I think it's very clear, based on the data we've gathered thus far, that we are not the apex intelligence. Now, of course, up until this point in our history, we've lived a very privileged existence because we've been unaware of these others. And that's led us to places of entitlement, where, for instance, we have a very convenient, shall we say, interpretation of our obligation to other animal species present on the planet. When you are the apex intelligence, that place of entitlement allows you to not really deal with for instance, what it would be like if the shoe was on the other foot. But with the revelation we're talking about here, that not just one, but perhaps many superior intelligences are in our midst, not just far away, that is a very uncomfortable, inconvenient truth that many people will have to suddenly deal with. This is very overwhelming. And again, this is why disclosure in the short term, in an overwhelming way, might not be the best option for human civilization. Lastly, speaking of disclosure, disclosure is like the horizon in that we're getting closer, but we'll never fully get there. And this is because the UFO phenomenon is like layers of an onion in that whatever answers are tentatively offered up only beget even deeper questions. And therefore, I would say, embrace and enjoy the journey. Not only do revelations from the UFO phenomenon and other forms of high strangeness, for that matter, tell us that reality is much more complex than we can currently account for or even really fully conceive of, but the truth is, this has always been the case, and importantly, always will be. I'm very much a believer in the Buddhist notion that everything is moving, everything is in transition. That's just the nature of reality. Nothing is permanent in terms of this relativistic kind of matrix-like reality we live in. My perspective is that this lifetime is but one of many iterations, and we've even talked about the others sharing this truth with us, and even experiencers coming into an understanding of this when they are either in between lives or sometimes when they are in the realm of these others. This also happens for people who have near-death experiences. Speaking of this, a famous quote from Tibetan Buddhist meditation master Chogyam Trungpa comes to mind here. 
when it comes to our understanding of this particular reality, this iteration we're living in, in this 3D plus one reality, which of course is only one aspect of a much larger totality. He famously said, quote, the bad news is you're falling through the air, nothing to hang on to, no parachute. The good news is there's no ground, unquote. May we take that to heart, not only in how we live our lives, but also in an enthusiastic, adventuresome pursuit of the truth behind the UFO phenomenon and ultimately behind reality itself. In other words, again, embrace and enjoy the journey in the now. And on that note, we've come to the close of another edition of the Point of Convergence podcast. As always, let's keep this conversation going and growing. But until next time, friends, from deep within the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina, this is Exoacademian signing out.